are listening to a podcast from The National. With the row between the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain and Egypt and Qatar still rumbling on, many observers were expecting this year's GCC summit to be cancelled. But then last week, in a somewhat surprising turn of events, it was revealed that the annual gathering would in fact go ahead. The typically three-day summit then began as planned on Tuesday, December 5th. But, as we will see, the surprises weren't over yet. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Laura McKenzie. Later in the show, we'll be hearing from Stephen Hadley, who served as George W. Bush's national security advisor between 2005 and 2009. He discusses Washington's expected recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, as well as other major issues currently affecting the United States and the Middle East. But first, we go to Kuwait City, where our reporter and the usual host of this podcast, Nasser al-Wesmi, has been covering this year's annual GCC summit. So last night, the annual GCC summit closed a day early. Can you talk us through what happened? Did officials give any indication as to why the third day of meetings was cancelled? Yeah, absolutely. The GCC summit, it's typically a three-day affair. The first day is where the foreign ministers of the three countries gather. They lay out the framework for uh, when the leaders come over the next two days. And most of the brunt work is done then. And that's uh, typically one of those grueling day-long sessions where media know nothing of what happened. It is believed that the Qatar crisis was discussed. After all, you had you know, Dr. Anwar Gargash, Adi Jubair, sitting within earshot of Sheikh Mohammed Al Thani. All of those, uh, of course, being the foreign ministers of the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, respectively. So it would be difficult to believe that they didn't discuss their differences. And when Sheikh Sabah al-Khalid, uh, Kuwait's foreign minister, gave his speech at the end of the meeting, he urged unity and the deepening of ties. Both those terms are typically thrown around at these meetings, but they're particularly pertinent given the context uh, of the Gulf today. As for why it was cut short, there was no uh, official reason given. This, however, is not unprecedented. Remember, I mean, in the 1990s and once in the early 2000s, the GCC summit happened over a span of just two days, the foreign ministers meeting followed by the opening and closing session on the second day. And that was under significantly less strain than, than uh, 2017. Now, clearly, the elephant in the room was the Qatar crisis. So although the emirs themselves nor the ministers gave any official reason during the ceremony itself, uh, it might be a protocol issue. At the end of the day, the tables weren't balanced. You had heads of state as representatives meeting with lower-ranking officials. So a decision was never expected to come out because they can't be talking on equal footing. It does have to be mentioned, though, that the fact this meeting happened at all, albeit extremely short, the closed session was only 15 minutes, it means a lot. What was the general atmosphere like at the summit? So inside the halls, at times it was a bit surreal. When you strip all the politics, the state-building aspects, and the symbolism of all of it, you're left with what is essentially a, a gathering of people. And their body, long, their body language can say a lot. Before the opening session, you had both UAE delegation and the Qatari delegation huddled on opposite ends of the round table where they were congregated at the Al-Tahrir Hall in Al-Bayan Palace. You could tell a lot from how people were interacting, who was shaking hands with who. At one point, 
before uh, the closing session on Tuesday, you had Sheikh Tamim, a step up, walk over to his seated Kuwaiti counterpart, squat down and exchange a whispered conversation. A minute later, you had Dr. Anwar Gargash do the same. These meetings, in a big way, they're still very tri- tribal, as so much as the Arabian Gulf still is. Who you know and how well you know them plays a huge part in how politics are decided in the region. And at the conference, you see these affiliations at the very highest level. But regardless of the outcome, there was a sense of optimism that remains until today. Many of the Kuwaiti papers are lauding the meeting as a success, especially in the fact that decisions were actually reached, albeit perhaps not specifically about Qatar, in a short span of time. And the fact that it happened at all, on time, and pushed the standoff into a slightly warmer environment, that was huge. What's interesting is, even in the press hall, uh, you had Qataris and Emiratis, Bahrainis, all together. And it's difficult not to know one another and interact. At the end of the day, there is no law or decision saying that Qatari civilians and Saudi civilians can't still be friends, or in many cases, family. So... There was a breath of fresh air to remember that the entire region is so interconnected. So you've described what sounds like a kind of warming of relations between Qatar and the GCC member states at the summit, at least. And Dr. Anwar Gargash, the UAE's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, said at the summit that convening uh, the gathering in the current political climate was a very positive step. So is it is it clear what kind of progress in terms of concrete progress was made at the gathering in terms of resolving the row? Were any specific decisions made or was it more just the general atmosphere felt warmer? It is, it is a really positive step. And that's for two reasons. Remember, the UAE, Saudi Arabia and Bahrain didn't only cut diplomatic or trade ties with Qatar. They cut all ties with Doha. As far as we're concerned, they haven't met at all in six months. In fact, it was six months exactly the day of the opening session. So there was some hopes to an elegant resolution to the crisis that was perhaps slightly unfounded. But prior to this, and even as close as last week before the invitations were sent out, the three GCC countries that have boycotted Qatar expressed that they were unwilling to attend if Doha did not change its way. But they were there. And that goes back to show that the representatives have a huge amount of respect for the Emir of Kuwait. And he's well-versed in these matters. He served as Minister of Foreign Affairs for almost 40 years before assuming the role of leader of Kuwait. The fact that he brought them together is a sign that dialogue can happen, and it could be the first step, first step towards a resolution. It's one of those events that can't really stand for anything until... Uh, it's put in a historical context down the line. The second part of uh, why it was a success is in the fact that the summit happening continues a 30-year-old track record of not delaying or canceling the GCC's annual meeting. So by continuing with it and having it happen, maintains a fair degree of integrity for uh, the regional bloc. Was it successful in the sense that all six countries emerged holding hands triumphantly? No. Did any real decision... Or any real resolution happened? Absolutely not. But they were there and engaged in some form of dialogue. So that's a definite positive sign. 
So obviously the third the third day of meetings at the summits was cancelled. So is it clear where mediation efforts on the Qatar crisis will go from here? Do we have any indication of, of when there might be meetings next? Mediation efforts, they have to go to Riyadh and Doha and Abu Dhabi and Manama. At the end of the day, Kuwait and Oman, or really the rest of the world, for that matter, can only do so much. But if the countries themselves are not willing to directly talk to each other to engage and compromise, then it won't go anywhere beyond a loose, perhaps unstable agreement. At the end of the day, I don't personally believe that a prolonged crisis will benefit anyone, especially when you consider the turbulence of the region. You have Yemen in what could be a very difficult time ahead uh, with Ali Abdullah Saleh uh, being killed this week. Iraq is still picking itself back up. Syria is still an atrocity. This is not to mention fears of Iran's growing influence, which I'm sure you know is the very reason why the GCC was formed in the first place, as a counterweight to Iran's influence. So it really is in everyone's interest to continue working on a resolution to the crisis. And contrary to what people might be saying now, The GCC isn't going anywhere. It might uh, go into what many people have said, hibernation, but it will still be needed in the future. And I think that countries involved have enough interests aligned and actually have a shared heritage that denotes a sign of real personal affection among each other. So I think it will come to matter again, the GCC. When that happens, though, it's really anyone's guess. And at the summit, the Kuwaiti emir called for the formation of a committee to look into modifying the GCC statute. So he said the the body could ensure its continuing relevance. Can you tell us any more about this committee and and the possible changes to the statute? The, the details haven't been hashed out uh, as of as of right now. But this has probably been the biggest takeaway from a diplomatic point of view. A huge criticism of the crisis has been in how the role has spilled beyond the GCC's borders, as I mentioned. There was uh, some high-frequency travel happening between the countries and Washington, London, Germany, around the world, all in an attempt to lobby their causes. A big criticism has been, and I think where uh, most of the countries are now, is that the problem needs to be solved inside the Arabian Gulf home. Kuwait uh, can be the platform for that. When he was giving uh, his opening speech, uh, Sheikh Sabah Al-Ahmed said he welcomed all the representatives to, quote-unquote, their, their home in Kuwait. But he's really impressed everyone in his willingness and energetic approach to the role. Although he is extremely well-versed in diplomacy, probably the most experienced statesman in the region, he can't be doing it all by himself. A committee formed will help Uh, the burden-sharing, and get the countries involved in the resolution itself. By creating what will essentially be a reworking of the GCC charter to create a more robust conflict uh, resolution mechanism, this not only shows a a positive sign that the end of the crisis is not a lost cause, but it also makes the bloc more resilient. Remember, this isn't the first time a road like this has happened. In 2014, very similar to what happened this year, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain cut ties. And the Emir of Kuwait was crucial in bringing them back together in Riyadh. That's when we got the Riyadh Agreement. And that has arguably made the GCC more robust. 
So the details are yet to be hashed out, but we could expect their reworking of some aspects of the GCC charter. Next up, we hear from Stephen Hadley, who served in the George W. Bush administration as National Security Advisor. He speaks to the Nationals' James Langton on a day that could prove hugely significant for the Middle East, with the current US President, Donald Trump, expected to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and start a years-long process to move Washington's embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. This move had been anticipated for some time, but many in the Middle East hoped it would not happen amid fears for the peace process and the possibility that it could spark violence on the ground. The UAE, for one, warned of grave consequences should Mr. Trump go ahead with these plans. So it's an interesting day to be meeting, I would say. Yes, it is. Um, what happens tomorrow, I suppose, would be my first question to you. Well, we don't know. Um, I There'll be a lot of... Uh, a lot of hype. There'll be a lot of, uh, I think, justifiable concern. I hope the president will structure it. I guess it's today and Wednesday, or if they moved it to Thursday. Um, I, I think I hope the president will structure it in the following way, which would be to say, Jerusalem is the eternal capital of the Jewish people, and it's the Israeli state. Um, the issue about the boundaries and status of Jerusalem, particularly the issue of whether it is going to be the shared capital of two states for two, two peoples, is an issue for final status negotiations. And the timing on actually moving the real estate, well, that'll, that'll depend on construction and developments. Um, and all he would be basically saying is what Everybody already knows that Jerusalem's that uh, Israel's parliament is in Jerusalem. Yeah. Its prime minister sits in Jerusalem. Its ministers have offers, offices in Jerusalem. So I think there'll be a lot of, of a lot of concern because the administration has not laid out their Middle East proposal. So there's no context for it. And I hope that the administration will understand that and and place it in in the way that I described. And if, I, if they do, I think after an initial period of anxiety and some kind of reaction, uh, I think people will recognize that this is not a dramatic move. You know, President Bush said in the campaign that we are beginning the process to consider how to move the capital from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And we maintained that for eight years. And at the end they said, well, what about that? And he said, well, we're still considering. Because for him, it was going to be in the context of a Middle East peace. Well, that's so there, is, there isn't a big, there isn't a, I, I think this is a much less significant move than the region is, uh, is sort of spring-loaded to, to view it. You raise the question of a Middle East peace deal. Do you have any sense that this is part of that? That this is, uh, is any strategic move in which this, this moves things forward or dances a boil or whatever you know? That, uh... I, I hope it is. I hope it is. Uh, Jared Kushner, you know, gave an interview with Haim Saban at the Saban Forum um, and said that they're working on a plan, they have elements of a plan, that they've consulted about a plan, but it didn't disclose what that plan is. So right. I, I, I would hope this is part of an integrated strategy. Um, we'll have to see. 
Do you think there's any sense it could just be a distraction from uh, the President's own troubles? I don't think so. Uh, I think this is more um, a campaign pledge that he made. And um, hang on to it. And um, and something that you know part of his base will appreciate. Right. So I think it's much more that I don't think this is a wag the dog distracting from other problems. Right. I don't. Think, I don't believe that. But he obviously has his own difficulties. I don't know how you see those. What your view is how those? I don't think how that all plays out. Uh, whether it creates a weak president who therefore, certainly in the context of a, trying to negotiate something. Well, you know, it, it's regrettable, but um, most of our recent presidents have had one or more investigations in during their time in office. Um, we had it in the Bush administration about Valerie Plain and who disclosed her name to the press. The Clinton administration certainly had it with I remember that. I was uh, in Washington a number of, number of things uh, having to do with billing records and you know, pork belly futures and indiscretions. Um, so we have these kinds of things and we have a system for dealing with them, which is that either the Justice Department and the FBI do an investigation, or if they need to, as in this case, they bring in a special counsel who's given the resources to conduct an investigation. And if you know Robert Mueller, he is very apolitical. He is a career prosecutor. He is a by-the-book guy. And he's going to run this investigation by the book. And that's how we do things. And people who people have violated the law, they will be held to account. And the facts will come out, and we'll know what what happened. And American people can make their own judgments from a political standpoint. So that's how we do these things, and it's not that unusual. No. Uh, to change text slightly, it's almost I think it's almost exactly a year since you published your paper about an all right. Yes. It is exactly a year. Yeah. Um, I guess first of all, how do you see? How does the Middle East look a year on from that? Well, I think a lot of the things that we talked about have come true. I mean, one of the things we talked about was the bottom-up process, that there were young, a lot of young people, a lot of women, who were starting businesses, who were starting local civic organizations, who were dealing with their own problems, and that there were governments that were trying to reform, trying to respond to the demands of their people uh, for better education, better jobs, better health care, bringing their economies and their countries uh, into the modern, the, the 21st century. And we talked in that report that UAE was certainly one, was at, at the forefront. We talked about Tunisia, of course, about Jordan, uh, and about Morocco, I think. But we said it looks like that with Vision 20, that, that Saudi Arabia is moving in that direction. Of course, with Vision 2030 and the, and the leadership that the Crown Prince and the King have given, that's even now more true than it was a year ago. So I think that this process of change in the Middle East, bottom-up uh, and with some governments facilitating it, is even more true today than it was a year ago. Secondly, we said, of course, that terrorists had to be fought. We've made great progress. We, that is to say, the countries in the region, the moderate countries in the region, have made great progress against terror. You know, ISIS is now completely out of Iraq and soon will be defeated in Syria, and the caliphate is no more. Uh, 
That's a terrific accomplishment by a lot of states working together. Um, and uh, Iraq is settling down. Um, they have hard decisions to make about how they're going to go forward as three communities, Sunni, Shia, and Kurds, in, in a unified Iraq. Syria, you know, there is now really for the first time we've got some ceasefire zones, we've got some diplomatic activity. Maybe we will actually get uh, a path forward that begins to wind down the civil war in Syria. So I would say um, we've had some progress, we've had some setbacks, we've had some progress. And I think the analysis we made in the prescription was has has stood stood up quite well actually right. stood the test of time right. if you will. You you you've mentioned uh, obviously the UAE and Saudi Arabia in a sense of representing a certain kind of way of moving forward. Uh, and we saw yesterday uh, and what appears to be a process of those two countries moving ever closer together. How do you see that alliance progressing? Is it and how does that relate to the the GCC as an organization? Well, I think they've always been close together. Uh, I think uh, Mohammed bin Salman took inspiration in his Vision 2030 from UAE's Vision 2021. So I think they've always been close, and they've been, of course, close together on Yemen, close together in what to do about Qatar. Um, so I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's making visual what we've, or concrete what we've always known all along. Uh, the hope that I have, which is also the hope that it's been expressed by the Trump administration, is that um, Qatar will come back into the fold of being a responsible player dealing with the issue of terrorism, dealing with the issue of Iran, and that the GCC can deepen its cooperation because I think there's a, a great need for the Gulf states to deepen their cooperation in intelligence, in counterterrorism, and in defense cooperation, things like missile defense and the like. So, um, and I think that's still on the agenda. Certainly, that is still the preferred alternative for both Saudi Arabia and UAE. So, you wouldn't say the GCC has kind of had its day? I would not. I would not. I hope not. Uh, which also brings us to Iran, which is the sort of uh, one area, I guess, that lies outside all this um, and the issue of security and their support for in Yemen for the Houthis and you know, we've seen claims of missiles attacks on, uh, on, on the UAE this week. Um, these are issues of national security for, for, the, for the UAE. I mean, what, how, do you, how, do you, how do we progress on that? How do we deal with Iran? Well, one of the things that the Trump administration has tried to do, uh, and I think their strategy is beginning to unfold, the Obama administration decided that they were going to focus on Iran's nuclear capability and try to get the nuclear deal that put in place a number of measures that put greater transparency and limitations on its nuclear program. Um, but that meant that we were not addressing uh, Iran's um, development of ballistic missiles that would allow it to deliver nuclear weapons, uh, its support for care for Hezbollah, and its destabilizing of the neighborhood from Iraq to Syria to Lebanon, to Yemen, and in some sense a little bit Bahrain, because they're behind some of the things there. Those issues need to be addressed. 
And what the Trump administration came in is saying, you know, we have to have an effort together to try to address those other is issues about Iraq. And I think the meeting in Riyadh that came early in the new administration where over 50 Arab and Muslim countries came together with an agenda of fighting terrorist extremism and, and dealing with Iran's um, hegemonic impulses, as we say, um, was a good first step. Uh, more needs to be done, obviously. Um, but I think, uh, and if, if you look at the, the recent move by President Trump to tell the Congress that he would not certify the election, he, the, the agreement, he stayed in the agreement, he's not pulled out of the agreement, but he said to Congress, I can't certify that the benefits of this agreement outweigh the costs. And the Congress is now talking about how to use the issue of sanctions to incentivize our other allies to work with us to get Iran to extend the limits of the nuclear agreement, provide for greater in inspections, put some limits on its ballistic missile program, uh, and begin to uh, constrain and dial back some of its destabilizing activity in the region. That's a good start. I think we're going to have to, though, um, work more aggressively. Uh, for example, in Iraq, I think the United States is going to have to leave a significant military force there, somewhere between 10 to 20,000, um, to give us, uh, after ISIS is defeated, to give us to give the Iraqi government support in um, balancing its relationship with Iran, so that uh, to, to give it some basis from which to resist some of Iranian But pressure. do you see any signs of Iran, uh, Iran being reined in? I mean, we're now talk talking now about completing this corridor that they're driving all the way well, through. Well, we'll see. It depends a lot on the position of the Iraqi government. I think the Iraqi government, uh, we always felt that the Iraqi Shia were Iraqi first and Shia second and that Iraqis do not want to be a satellite of Iran. But Iran is a powerful neighbor, and a lot of Iranian-backed militias have helped um, clear the country of ISIS. So they are a reality. And I think the states in the, the Sunni states in the region need to bring Iraq back into the fold, reestablish diplomatic relations, uh, get a presence in Iraq, try help with the humanitarian situation, try to help with the rebuilding of the country and and help the government uh, be able to balance both its relationship with Iran and its relationships with its neighbors and a US presence right. can help that and similarly if there is a peace arrangement in Syria it's got to be one that does not basically legitimize and consolidate Iranian control of that country that's a hard one it's a hard one yeah. it's a hard one we're um, we should have been doing a lot of things in Syria that we were not doing that would have put us in a much better position than we are now to bring about that result. Do you think that goes back but we need to go, but, but without looking back, we are where we are yeah. and we need to do all we can right. to try to stabilize that country in a way that keeps it independent and does not again basically turn it over to the Iranians. And I think Secretary Mattis talked about he was asked, you know, now that ISIS defeated, why do we need troops there? And he said, well, we need to help stabilize this country so that ISIS doesn't come back. And if Syria is taken over by the Iranians, I think it will not be a stable country. No. Uh, 
And of course, there is the other front on all this, which is very much on people's minds here, which is Yemen, um, which from the outside looks <coughs> intractable in terms of a political solution um, and even a military solution. Do you think that still that the tactic that is being adopted by the UAE and, and, and Saudi is, is, is working? Is, is well, you know, part of the problem is, do they really have a choice? I mean, what do you do when, you know, rebel forces in a neighboring country are shelling <laughs> your cities yeah. and your towns? You can't ignore that. So part of the problem, and I think it's not really understood in my own country well enough, that this is just not some ideological effort by the Saudis and the Emiratis to check the Iranians. This is to deal with a real national security threat to Saudi Arabia. The missiles that are coming out of Yemen directed at Saudi towns and cities. My own belief, based on my conversations, is that that um, the uh, the Emiratis and the Saudis would like a political solution, um, but a political solution that does not have the Houthis taking over the whole country, or essentially Iran taking over the whole country, because again, that won't be stable. And rather than being returning to a peaceful situation between Yemen and Saudi, it institutionalizes tension and potential for conflict. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a problem that UAE and Saudi feel that they have to respond because it's a real security threat. They're trying to put military pressure on uh, the Houthis, um, but at this point the Houthis don't seem to be ready to come to the table uh, on a realistic way. And what the, the death yesterday of Saleh former president uh, is going to do for the situation, I think I think it's going to make it even more difficult to reach a political solution because I think there was about a situation where all the other non-Houthi forces were coming together to oppose the two Houthis and the death of Saleh may, may frustrate that. But at the same time there isn't really a military solution. You know, there's never really a military solution to these kinds of insurgencies. You know, you, but on the other hand, there isn't a political solution that does not have a military element. The formula has always been on these kinds of things um, to try through your political process to bring reconcilables out of the process and then to use your military instrument against those forces that are not irreconcilable. You try to get it in that framework. And regrettably, Yemen is not yet in that framework. But you seem actually quite optimistic um, looking forward in the sense that I don't know whether you're glass half, well, half empty or <coughs> half full kind of guy or so uh, Mike Hayden former director of CIA tells audiences uh, this is the difference between intelligence officers and policy people the intelligence officer will tell you that the glass is half empty and that it's leaking and the policy person will tell you, no, no, the glass is half full, and I've got a strategy to fix the leak and fill the glass the rest of the way up. So, you know, if you're a policy person, your job is to deal with the situation as it is and try to find a way forward to make it better. And I think there are some ways forward, but they'll be hard to achieve. 
they'll be hard to achieve. And in some place like Syria, the good options are long since in the rear view yeah, mirror. Syria, I don't and the options are just not very attractive. Yeah. It's very difficult. Yeah. But with, uh, I said, while we wait for the dust to settle, I mean, uh, I wonder how much uh, dust this is going to create, say, compared with What's tenure, this? The, the Jerusalem issue. We'll see. It's going to kick up a lot of dust at least. I think it will kick up a lot of dust initially, but I'm hoping two things will happen. One, that the administration will explain it the way I did in the initial announcement. They will then background people along the lines I've described. And after an initial uh, response, um, people will take a deep breath. Uh, and particularly if the administration is making progress on the framework for some kind of uh, resolution, and by resolution I mean an Israeli-Palestinian peace embedded in a broader reconciliation between Israel and the rest of the Arab world, uh, if there, there, there comes to be confidence that the Trump administration really is pursuing that uh, with, with commitment and, and has a plan, I think, I hope the dust will settle and this issue will recede. Do, do you think... Uh, but again, it depends a lot on how they frame it, whether they frame it the way I yeah. did or frame it in some other ways. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think there's, there's also a sense that governments in this region uh, have less of a desire to make this into something that causes a bigger issue? I think they don't want to make it into a big issue, but on the other hand, they have to show solidarity with the Palestinian people. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the dilemma. Thank you so much to Stephen Hudley, Nasser Al-Wesmi and James Langton. I'd also like to thank Kevin Jeffers for producing this show. You can find this and all of The National's other podcasts on Apple's podcast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. And of course, on thenational.ae. I've been your host, Laura McKenzie. Thank you for listening and goodbye for this week.